Mishima himself had samurai ancestry, and he was extremely proud of it. You can easily find two contradictional characteristics of Japanese cultures or Japanese characters. One is elegance, one is brutality. But these two characteristics are very uh, tightly combined sometimes. And uh, our brutality, I think, comes from our emotion. It is never mechanized or systematized like Nazi's brutality. And uh, I think the brutality might come from our feminine aspect. And elegance comes from our nervous side. Sometimes uh, we are too sensitive about defilement or elegance or sense of beauty of such aesthetic side. And uh, sometimes we are tired of it. And uh, we need sometimes a sudden explosion. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today is Rich. Hi, guys. Uh, Nick is still in Japan uh, as we're recording this. I think he's supposed to be back next week or something. Hopefully back by Christmas. Yeah, I don't I don't believe or trust it. So uh, I wrote an episode about Japan uh, that he could not be on because he's in Japan. I feel like that's fitting. <laughs> um, and I brought you on because along with being a true crime aficionado and junkie, you're also really into cults. If there's anything I love more than serial killers, it's cults. Yeah. And uh, so today we're, so I'll, I guess I'll let you be the judge at the end of this. If this really was a cult or something else, um, uh, we're going to talk about how a strange group fitness class turned into something of an imperial death cult and tried to take over a country. Intriguing. All led by J- one of Japan's greatest authors and a harem of gay samurai. <laughs> uh, so uh the samurai thing is arguable uh because um samurai is a class that technically no longer exists and didn't exist then but they certainly considered themselves samurai and uh pretended to be as much uh i guess that that, that part's up for debate uh but uh the episode is about uh yokio mishima or how he was actually born. His real name is Kimitaki Hiroka, but uh, Mishima is his pen name that his teachers thought of him, uh, thought of for him. And so that's what we're going to call him because that's what he's known as. Does that mean something? Uh, no. Uh, well, his his name does mean something, uh, but his pen name was thought of. Uh, we'll we'll talk about it in a little bit, but uh, he was something of a prodigy. And uh, his teachers were afraid that his writing was going to get him picked on for being so successful. So they just came up with a new name for him to be published under like a pen name. Kind of like, uh, was it J.K. Rowling thought of Robert Galbraith? To, to try and see if she could yeah. separate herself from a female identity as a writer. Yeah. I mean, pen names are are pretty common. I mean, Stephen King had a pen name for a while to try to, because he wanted to write under a different name. But I mean, it's not exactly uh, comparable because they just didn't want this poor kid to get picked on. They didn't really work out, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> I, think that's more, I think that's more comparable to the, to the female writer because a female writer wants to see if she can stand alone in a man's world yeah. versus Stephen King, who probably just wanted to try something new. Yeah, and Mishima was about 12. So uh, no one would read a 12-year-old's writing. Uh, I know nobody read mine. I'm 30 and barely anybody reads mine now. So, <laughs> uh, uh, but Mishima was born to an aristocratic family in Tokyo in 1925 to a high-ranking government official and a relative to the principal of the Kasai Academy. Uh, that doesn't mean a whole lot to uh, Western people, but uh, this is pretty much like being born to, like, if you're like the grandkid to a former, like, head of Yale. So it's a, it's a pretty big deal. And um, 
Uh, more importantly than that, he was uh, kind of tentatively connected to Japanese royalty. Um, and that if that wasn't prestigious enough for you, he was uh, descended from the Maeda samurai clan. And uh, they are once feudal lords of the entire Kaga doma- domain where his family still lived. Uh, and even though the caste system was technically abolished, it was still definitely a thing his family was obsessed with. And so is everybody else. So I'm sorry if this is not in your uh, script here, but I have no like clue about anything about Japan's government. Is it a royalty based government? Um, they still have an emperor today. It's there. He's even less than a constitutional monarch than like the queen is. Um, but he is still a super central figure to their Shinto religion, which is why the emperor is such a big deal. Uh, during world war two, he was considered something of a, uh, of a godlike figure, like kind of like a God on earth type deal. He was supposedly de- descended directly from the sun god i think it was um i'm sure if i'm wrong somebody will tell me um which is why world war ii was such a big deal at the end um when uh emperor hirohito actually uh made a speech i know that doesn't sound like a big deal but uh the vast majority of japanese people had actually never heard the emperor speak before uh he, he was considered so high above them they weren't good enough to hear his voice which is kind of funny because he had uh, a really he was very soft-spoken and kind of had a bit of a stutter and he spoke in a kind of japanese that was so much different than everybody else they actually had a hard time understanding him like metatron and dogma Yes. And it was such a big deal because in his uh, surrender speech to the allies, one of the things he had to do is renounce his divinity. So it's kind of like the Pope coming out and saying like, Jesus was just a carpenter. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that was it. Uh, but also a lot of this has to do with, this is pre-World War II, um, when uh, militarism was uh, very popular and they're trying to re kind of re- birth the samurai feudal system, but not in a functional way, only in a way to fuel militarism. Like there was no shogun anymore. There's nothing like there's no daimyo anymore, but uh, they were trying to uh, revisit the spirit kind of sort of to build their uh, imperial desires, uh, which is how World War II kind of happened. So their their government structure is very, very highly based on religion. It, it was back then. Okay. Um, since the since their defeat in World War II, uh, religion has definitely fallen off significantly in Japan um, because the emperor had to make that speech renouncing his divinity, which is why Mishima ended up having such a huge uh, internal uh, conflict and his um, mostly due with his family, which we'll talk about. But uh, it it kind of tore at the soul of the country. If that doesn't sound dr- dramatic enough, it definitely was. It it made a fundamental reformation of religion, government, and society all at once, all while their government was firebombed and atomic bombed to the ground. So like it was, it was pretty, pretty crazy time, but this is 1925. So we're not quite there yet. Um, at the time, there's still the, I mean, even though when you, when you read uh, Western history books, it, it makes you it makes it sound like the emperor was in like, absolute monarchy and he was not he had a prime minister and uh, an entire government uh parliament known as the dite and uh like the the emperor was super super important and people revered him and in mishima's family case they absolutely worshipped him but he was not actually the head of state um in, in practical terms um but in this family 
it was super important uh, because uh, while his mother and father were like professionals, they, they weren't in deep in the government or anything like that, but they were uh, far too busy to take care of Mishima. So they hand him off to his grandmother, a woman named Natsuko, um, who pretty much brainwashed him into uh, loyalty to the Imperial family. This isn't super uncommon at the time as I mean, eventually people were suicide bombing people in the name of the emperor. So like, this is this is normal. Um, I mean, is it common to be like, yeah, I gave birth to this child, but I really don't have time to take care of it. So can you just kind of take this on? No, no. His dad was a huge piece of shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, his dad was a very, very traditional. Uh, like he only wanted to raise his child through like physical and uh, emotional abuse. Uh, but he was too busy for that quite quite now. So he just ditched him on grandma. Sounds very American of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what doesn't, though, is... Uh, so, uh, Natsuko was actually raised in the imperial household of Prince Tarahito. So, like, not only was she, like, the normal amount of brainwashed into, like, the dynastic and godliness of the imperial household, like, she was actually raised with them, uh, which makes their family super important and him very well connected. Um and this is despite the fact, uh, since she married away from the imperial family um, in Japan, like most monarchies uh, in the East and actually in the West for the most part, um, all titles and power is carried on the, uh, the on the man's side of the family. Like even today, uh, if a princess, an imperial princess marries away, she loses title, she loses money, she no longer has any privileges or anything. Uh, Shock. Yeah. And, uh, you know, total side note, but this uh, up until very recently, they were actually going to have a constitutional amendment in Japan that would have allowed an empress to take over because there were no male heirs. Um, But that ended up changing. But uh, so when she married away, she lost all of her titles and everything, but she never actually abandoned any of her bougie imperial pretenses. Um, And if anything, they actually got stronger to try to connect her to uh, something she thought was really important. Um, which she then forced on young Mishima. Um, she would never allow him to forget they were direct descendants of the Toka, of Tokugawa Ieyasu, who uh, his family line ruled Japan for 200 years. Um, so it, it was pretty, pretty important. Um, she sounds absolutely insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm sure most royal debutantes, I, what do you call them? The young women. <sighs> she wasn't a princess. I don't know. Uh, just a rich woman. Heiress? No, she wasn't heir to anything. She gave all that up. She was just some old bitch who wouldn't give it up. Wouldn't like forget about stuff. I mean, I think you're still always an heiress, though. In Not the, in, in Japan. The, in the in the sense of the term, where you are, I don't. I I think there's I think there's a certain connotation to heiress in America where uh, yeah. she's certainly privileged. Yeah. Um, Natsuko is also very prone to violence and random outbursts about death and morbidity. <laughs> um, okay. It, it's really strange. Um, uh, she believed that sunlight was unhealthy for him, uh, for young Mishima. So he was forbidden of going outside. Well, that's not good. <laughs> Strike yeah. number one. Yeah. Uh, he was also not allowed to play sports or meet other kids his age. Strike two. Uh, and I think this is uh, something she carried over from the Imperial household, like... Young royalty are rarely allowed to go outside. They're not allowed to talk to any commoners. Um, it's cons- it's a super cloistered existence, even for other like if you compare it to other royalty. Um, like the Japanese uh, imperial household is super conservative uh, to the point that uh, like the current 
prince like his what he married a commoner and uh she was actually having severe mental issues because of it I feel like even using the word conservative, which definitely has a negative connotation in these times in America, uh, especially in this podcast. <laughs> um, but even using the word conservative is a bit harsh there because not letting your kid go outside or associate with other kids his age is borderline abuse. Well, it, <laughs> like, I mean, I don't mean conservative in a political aspect uh, because they're, you know, literal royalty. Uh I consider it conservative as far as um, morals, uh, morals, no, ethics, no, no. and everything. I, I get it. But even in the most conservative morals, you are right. allowed to associate with other people your age. I guess I could consider it. It's it's conservative for a strange imperial aristocracy uh, where people literally think you're Jesus. Uh, <laughs> it, there's really no uh, modern day comparative thing except maybe like the the Kim family from North Korea where like they believe he was born on a mountain and like there's double rainbow and like he invented the hamburger weird shit like that. It's like the he o- still needs sunlight though. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently not if you're uh, if, if you're the Imperial household. Uh, but again, they technically were not. Uh, <laughs> she was just living her golden days. Uh, she was just raised around them. She was not blood related to them <laughs> at all. Just pushing all her uh, her own childhood beliefs onto her grandchild. Is that yes, that grandson. Yeah, grandson. Um, so because of this, the like the real only interaction he got with other kids, and like the only kind of mental uh, exercise he got was he was uh, forced to play only with his cousin and her dolls, uh, <laughs> which is a little weird. I always liked playing with my cousins. And uh, these aren't action figures. <laughs> what kind of dolls are they? I don't know. I would are they like those like creepy like they have to be porcelain? They have to be like porcelain with no faces. Ugh. Something super weird. Any porcelain doll, any porcelain doll is creepy. Yeah. Um, I guess the only good thing that came from this is um, it gave him time to dive into his new hobby, which was writing. Um and uh, this is the origin story of uh, every writer, actually. Uh, <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> we're, we're all weird shut-ins when we're young, and that's why we start writing. Um, I actually, like, I know I wrote this as a joke, but uh, it's it's not really a joke for me. Like, I like didn't really do a whole lot as a kid, so I w- I'd read a lot. And then, like, once you start reading a lot, you think, hey, maybe I can give this a shot. And then I start writing. And I think I... I think I showed you some of those very first writings that I did, like those shitty little books <laughs> about like, I don't remember what all of them are, they were, but they had really bad illustrations too. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't good. They certainly weren't Mishima good. Uh, Cause he was, like I said, he was like a prodigy. Um, uh, we were all like, like I said, all writers have the same origin story. We're all Aristotic shut-ins who yearn to please the shogunate while being utterly terrified of the sun touching our pearl-like skin. Uh, uh, that might be a little bit of hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while his grandma may have been a lunatic, she was also well, very well-connected. Uh, so she got Mishima enrolled in the best school in the country. Um, and he, um, he probably would have made it in any way. Uh, because he was just so goddamn good at everything he touched. Like he's one of those weird guys that even though he's like very troubled, he was good at fucking everything. Um, before he left grade school, he'd be the editor of the school's literary society, which by the way, his grade school had a fucking literary society. <laughs> um, Did around- he finally get to play with other kids? I would assume so. Uh, but they probably had like weird reading circles about like death poetry. I don't know. He was a, 
I mean, he was a weird kid. That's what he, so he wrote about a lot of dark shit. Uh, around the same time I was debating, like around the same time he was doing this, I was debating which Pokemon to select as my first one. I mean, I was reading like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and I mean, I, mean, I think I, I read The Giver. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's pretty dark. As dark as I probably got right. as a grade school kid. Right. I mean, I picked Charmander. So <laughs> like, I I guess that's one point for me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> my whole world is fire. <laughs> <laughs> it burns so hot and so fast. Uh, so during this time, he wrote a short story titled Forest in Full Bloom. Uh, it described the feelings that his ancestors still within him. Um, they lived within him and uh, were in control of his destiny, while at the same time driving him towards his own death. He was 10 years old. Uh, so I have a funny story, uh, tragic, uh, maybe, maybe not so funny, but, uh, so I was writing a ton in middle school. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was older than 10, but I'm going to assume my developmental arc is significantly beyond his at this point. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it made me immediately think like, wow, nobody thought to tell this 10 year old, like this kid's got issues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I had to write a creative story, a uh, creative writing story. And, um, at the time, uh, me and my sister were watching Scream over and over and over again. So <laughs> Good choice. I, yeah. Yeah. So I wrote a story based on Scream, but like there was a killer in the school because, you know, you're a kid. You spend more time in school than you do with your family. Uh, about, but like it was, inc- it was incredibly descriptive. And all I got was CPS to visit my mom's house. <laughs> oh, your poor mom. <laughs> she had enough on her plate, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> like I thought like... It was like the greatest thing I ever wrote. And CPS is like, we think your son has like needs to talk to somebody. <laughs> I, I think that probably speaks a lot to to your writing. Like that probably means it was actually pretty great. Yeah. Like if I, I would like to think the same thing uh, as far as like it was so well descripting and, and the horrible acts of violence I was writing about that they're like, holy shit. This kid. I mean, it probably also speaks to all of the issues that you had as a young child True. with your parents and I, everything. But. I don't know. I don't know. I don't still know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So instead of calling CPS, his teachers published it uh, in a, in a, in a national magazine. Uh, it gave, and that's when they gave uh, Mishima his pen name. Uh, they were afraid his fellow students would make fun of him for his success in his writing. All of those teachers' worries were ignored by Mishima himself, and he was so excited about becoming a published writer, he uh, went and told all of his friends on the school's rugby team. Uh, they did not think this was cool, and uh, because kids are the fucking worst, they beat the shit out of him and kicked him off the team. Kids are the fucking worst. Yeah. Like, why can't you just celebrate each other's successes? <laughs> What you think you're so smart now, you fucking nerd? <laughs> Kids are so fucking insecure. Like, okay, you're on the rugby team. You're probably a pretty cool, like, athlete, like, popular kid. Yes. But you can't, you can't be happy for this other kid for his success in this completely separate arena that you don't even have a fucking toe in. Yeah. Again, he was ten, I- and he was published in a national. Yeah. Letter uh, or a national magazine of literature. Just let him be great. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and say this. This is this is very early on, but I'm going to say it. These fucking rugby, rugby kids who beat his ass, they're the reason why he fucking became a cult leader and murdered people, which I'm assuming he did. I don't know what the end of the story <laughs> is, but I'm assuming that's it. And, and it's the rugby kid's fault. I'm going to say it's weirder than you think it is at the end. <laughs> uh, 
But I won't go so far as saying it's the rugby kids. I'm going to blame dad. Nope. Blaming the rugby rugby kids. Oh, my God. Why can't I say rugby? <laughs> uh, be- because we have been drinking Armenian brandy for several hours. <laughs> right. That is the fact. <laughs> uh, so that is when Mishima finally returned to his family when he was 12. And uh, if you thought his grandma was bad, it, it actually turned out returning to his family was even worse for him. Uh, unfortunately for Mishima, his dad thought his writing was effeminate, sissy, and uh, he destroyed all of his writings. How can writing be effeminate? Was he writing about, like, I, I don't even know. How do you, how do you uh, write effeminately? <laughs> I don't know, which is weird uh, because his family uh, all thought of themselves as, like, descendants of samurai, all those other things. And uh, poetry and writing was actually super important to samurai. Um, like they wrote death poems uh, before they went so. to battle and everything. Yeah, they were uh, super. I mean, as far as warrior casts go, they were super artistic. Uh, they had, in, I mean, there's entire parts of the Hagakure um, that are about flower arranging. I mean, I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing it's not just like ugh, and then I stabbed that fucker. Like you have to have right. a little bit of art with it. You know, it certainly started out that way, uh, <laughs> and then like when wars wean, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when wars stopped becoming so prevalent in Japan, that's when like the way of the samurai was kind of pulled out of somebody's ass <laughs> to kind of keep them relevant. Uh, but yeah, I mean. The, the samurai these guys are attaching themselves to wrote poetry, they arranged flowers, they wrote whole novels, they painted, uh, they they did all of that more than fighting with their swords. <laughs> but no, writing is totally gay, uh, so we should probably destroy all this shit. Clearly. Um, this included some of his earliest manuscripts, so like the, the best site we would see in Amishima, his psyche is gone uh, because his dad was an asshole. Uh, this never really slowed Mishima down, though. Uh, but when he was caught, he was beat ruthlessly and then held up alongside speeding trains. What? Yeah, to just scare the shit out of him. That what? Yeah, I mean, imagine being 12 years old and just being held up next to a speeding fucking train. And this- I mean, I just recently rode on my first train <laughs> when I was 30. I can't imagine being held up alongside one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like close enough to legitimately scare him half to death. I, that's not okay. <laughs> no, that that could be the tagline this whole episode. Uh, that's not okay. That that's not okay. Um, his mother, though, was significantly more supportive than his father. She would bring him writing supplies and hide his writings from his father when he would get drunk and toss his room apart, looking for any of that sissy ass written word shit. Uh, she would also smuggle him books by people like Oscar Wilde, uh, which is, do you know much about Oscar Wilde? I've heard the name before. Uh, super prolific writer and also very closeted gay man, uh, which will definitely sound familiar later on. Um, and he was decades ahead of his time, uh, much like Mishima himself, um, but it's because his father uh, banned all non-school books from the house. Like, if he was at school, if he was home from school, the only thing he was allowed to do was to fucking study for school. Jesus. So, okay. So, in his early days, he's not allowed to see sunlight or other children. In his school days, he's not allowed to read anything outside of school books. Like, Jesus, yeah. give this kid a fucking break. Of course yeah. he's going to turn into a psycho cult leader. Like, they're just, they're asking for it. Uh, yeah, I would say that they couldn't have seen this coming because nothing like it existed before. Uh, but I, I definitely think his dad would have been like, yeah, probably sort of saw that coming if he lived long <laughs> enough. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, again, you have to remember this whole time Mishima's already nationally known. Um, 
he was a generational writing talent. Uh, he was accepted pretty much immediately into the University of Tokyo. Uh, and thankfully for him, he got the fuck out of the house. Uh, and the course load was brutal and uh, something like double that of a modern day American student. And as someone, there's something that we have both experienced and are currently experiencing. It was probably two times that. Um, and uh, that didn't stop him from staying up until the early morning, writing all night, uh, finally free of his dad and not having to hide. So he'd spend all day studying and all night writing. He hardly slept. Uh, he hardly slept. He ate like shit, uh, chain smoked and drank like pretty much every college kid. So he's really fucking unhealthy at the time. Um then, because this is now the 1940s, Mishima received a draft notice in the mail from the Imperial Japanese Army as World War II began to rapidly grow out of control. Oof. Yeah. Uh, well, good news and bad news. Uh, this wasn't an outlier by any means. Uh, the army was pretty much always conscription-based, and uh, before the war, there was a good chance Mishima's family connections would have actually gotten him out of it if he wanted to. Uh, but as the war started creeping up... Wasn't going to happen. So Mishima's rich ass was sent to the draft office anyway. Uh, Because his life as a college student and uh, he was super unhealthy, like I just said, um, he was really unhealthy and he had a a pretty bad cold going when he went into the office. So when he went into the medical checkup area, like, you know, even back then they do medical checkups um, to make sure that they're not drafting some horrible sick bastard that's going to die the second you put him in uniform. you know, and that's kind of surprising because the Japanese military was notoriously brutal. And he probably, if he if he w- really was this sickly, he probably would have just died. Um, but the doctor heard rails in his lung. It's kind of like a rasping noise um, that can mean all kinds of horrible shit. Uh, it can mean a cold. It can mean pneumonia. Uh, the Apparently, the doctor was really overworked or just didn't give a shit, and he just diagnosed him with tuberculosis, which which definitely makes him unfit for military duty. Um, as the Japanese are going to suffer millions of dead and wounded from the war, there's a very good chance this half-assed doctor saved his life. Um, I imagine Mishima got the last laugh on those asshole rugby players, though, who are all probably drafted and died in the war for being a bunch of healthy bastards. <laughs> Uh, Those fucks. <laughs> yeah, take that, you good breathing fucks. Uh, Mishima's draft rejection uh, did not help his relationship with his dad uh, because his dad totally knew he didn't have tuberculosis. Everybody knew he didn't have tuberculosis. I mean, I feel like his relationship wasn't great to begin with when his dad like just decided he didn't want to raise him from the very beginning. Yeah, if your dad ever uses trains as punishment... <laughs> There's a good chance you're not going to have a good relationship with him. Um, so, like, everybody knew he was faking it, and they lit into him. And uh, Mishima did not take this well. It was considered something of, like, a dishonor that he couldn't serve. Um, it, he, even though it wasn't his fault, he got a doctor who apparently was not very good at his job. And nobody really accepted that. Um Thankfully, though, he just ran back to college and away from his, his parents. Uh, while still in school, he continued to accumulate writing accolades. He wrote novel, novels, novellas, short stories, and essays. He wrote several highly regarded kabuki plays and musicals. Dude literally never stopped. <laughs> um, many of these writings had a very common theme, death and suicide. Uh, he never in his life wrote anything that could be considered lighthearted. 
from the time he was like 10 years on, he was just writing heavy shit. Um, this included his first full length novel, which he began writing in 1946 called Thieves. It was about two young members of the aristocracy drawn towards suicide. Yeah, there's a theme there. Uh, most people who study Mishima put his obsession with death and suicide squarely in the shoulders of his grandma. Uh, her rants and abuse had badly affected the young boy, but it was also considered pretty much acceptable for the time period in Japan. Uh, suicide and death was pretty common in 1940s uh, in the country. Being common doesn't mean acceptable. Not acceptable as much as his attitude is very acceptable. Um, it's considered like if you're surrounded by dark shit all the time, um, like a good example is uh, Robert uh, Evans, who runs the Behind the Bastards podcast. He did a thing earlier where he was talking about Iraqi art coming out from since the war, uh, 2003 started. And uh, it's it's just super fucking dark. Uh, a lot of it has to do with death and destruction and PTSD and things like that. It, it's it's just considered a product of your atmosphere. Uh, so more of like a a therapeutic thing than a yeah, it's an outlet concerning thing, right? It's like I'm never gonna write something that's super happy, but that's it's an outlet. Um, it's kind of you know it makes me really wonder what happened to Stephen King when he was a kid. But <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I would like that question answered yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, living in Tokyo through massive air raids during World War II meant Mishima is pretty much surrounded by death at all times. Um, and if he wasn't, he was very familiar with it. Uh, he was also raised during the Bushido Age or the rebirth of the Japanese Imperial Army, which in effect had a total control of the civilian government of Japan. Uh, when the underlying areas of Bushido was service to the emperor and suicide being a means of retaining one's honor. Uh, so you can imagine when he's going through all of these, uh, these things that are considered dishonorable to him, he would constantly think of suicide. That wouldn't be super surprising if he just, if he, even though he wasn't doing it or attempting, uh, he was, he was certainly musing with it. No, that makes perfect sense. Like a lot of, a lot of um, kids who do anything that they that they have been told their whole lives is shameful or whatever, and they think probably even if that's who they feel that they are as a person, they think that um, the consequences that they've been told their whole lives they should suffer for doing right. that thing is you know is what they should be suffering then that seems perfectly reasonable that that's what they would be thinking about the whole time. Yeah, he's probably doing with a lot of self-guilt. Um, like like every time. Christian who thinks they're going to hell for doing everything that is right. enjoyable in life. Right. Every like poor religious, uh, someone from a religious family who, who discovers that they're gay or yes, accepts like that they're gay. The very, very sad Bohemian Rhapsody movie that we just watched where <laughs> yeah. Freddie Mercury was just so ashamed of himself his whole life for being the poor little Packy boy. He wasn't Pakistani, though. But that's what they called him. <laughs> that's just the England thing. It was very sad, Joe. Yeah, England just racist as fuck. I think that has a lot to do with this. It was just very sad that he hated himself and he was so lonely. Yeah, yeah. But on the bright side, he wasn't part of a giant suicide death cult. He did die of AIDS, though. Yeah, that's sad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to the story. Way to bring it down. You, you know what? You really took this this episode uh, about a death cult and made it real, real upsetting. Yeah, because Freddie Mercury dying is the saddest thing to happen in history. So this death cult could only just be a side note. <laughs> okay. 
bringing me back to Mishima. Uh, so there's, it's actually not about Mishima. There's a small uh, side note here. Uh, a, a lot of people, um, amateur historians, people who teach themselves history based on the Discovery Channel, what have you, uh, they they talk a lot about Bushido and the way of the samurai uh, as as this this code that was the reason for a lot of the brutality and the suicides and uh, stuff like that from the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II. Bushido is bullshit, it turns out. Uh, it's generally framed as being an ancient code of the samurai that guided them through the Sengoku period, uh, which is known as like the time of war, and continued unobstructed through World War II and the Empire of Japan. The truth is significantly less cool. Um, it turns out Japanese samurai were a lot like medieval knights in that they did tons of fucked up shit, constantly oppressed people, uh, enslaved people, raped people, committed crime, and pretty much killed people on a whim. And they just wrapped it up in a really cool thing uh, to make themselves sound good. And now in the Middle Ages, they called it chivalry. Um, the main difference being like chivalry was actually written around this, like the codes of chivalry were kind of written around the same time knights existed in their heyday. Bushido was not. Um, the truth is uh, the Bushido code was not actually codified into a book until 1899, uh, well after samurai were actually outlawed. So that would, yeah, it, I can't think of a, a of a comparison to that, but it's like, I mean, uh, you weren't allowed to carry a sword anymore. Those are all during the um, the Meiji Reformation, decades before that. Um, if you if you want a really bad comparison, it's around that time when samurais are outlawed. Uh, when the Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, is based in, not entirely accurate, uh, though they. It's more accurate than you could imagine. <laughs> what a Japanese movie with a white guy as the Last Samurai is not accurate. Yeah, in the true story, he was French. <laughs> yeah, that actually happened. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, not Tom Cruise. Um, but, you know, the idea of Bushido became a thing well after samurai were no longer legally a thing. Uh, there's also something called the Eight Virtues of Bushido, which a lot of people constantly talk about. Uh, they were not written by a samurai or anybody else of any importance. They were actually written by a guy named Nibotate Inazo, who was a economist. It, it was used as a militaristic means of control during a time where um, Japan rapidly wanted to become a first world power. And they thought the best way to do that was become kind of an imperial militaristic fascist state. Um, and it worked. It worked really well. It worked so well, people still believe it to this day. <laughs> so good on them for that, I guess. Um, yeah, and it didn't really become popular until the government itself took control of it and used it to build its army. Uh, it, it made war look purifying and death just another duty to the god emperor. It, it's really weird how well it worked, like within 50 years. Um, the spin worked so well uh, that it galvanized the Japanese military into what resembled something of a death cult, where entire divisions con uh, conducted suicide charges rather than surrender. And uh, because the, the, the very concept of surrendering was dishonorable, um, there was actually a, you know, they're one of the, it's one of the few wars where nobody kind of tried to negotiate POW transfers because Japan didn't want them back. I mean, did they, they at least get like virgins or something when they died? Like, nah, nah. what's, what's the draw here? You got to die for the emperor, man. It was uh, like a good example is I recorded an episode with Mike, you know, Mike, um, 
where love you mike yeah i don't know if he listens i hope he does because he's on the fucking show but uh <laughs> uh when somebody went missing uh, like they were taking pow and the Kwantung army which is an army group of the japanese imperial army uh they just reported them dead <laughs> that's that that just seems unreasonable <laughs> it was it was a way for the family to keep their honor your kid's dead he didn't surrender he's not a bitch <laughs> like i said uh, as Mishima did not fight in the war, it is telling that he, too, became super obsessed with these concepts. Uh, there's another theme that cropped up in Mishima's writing, homosexuality, which is surprising in 1948. Uh, now that he graduated college, he followed the book Thieves with a book known as The Confession of a Mask, uh, a story about a young gay man who must hide his true feelings in order to blend into society. Uh, this is so far ahead of its time. Like, it's insane uh it's known as like a seminal work in like homosexual writing to this day this came out in the 1940s in japan so i know that he's a bad guy here but i feel really sorry for him at this point he's a conflicting character because if you remove uh, now i have to admit i never read any of his books i know nate has uh a long time ago we talked about it if he feels like editing in a bit here about how what he thought about the books be my guest um but yeah, the one thing I'll say is that in Confessions of a Mask, the protagonist has two major events um, with regard to his development as both an artist and a person. Number one, uh, he beats off to a painting of the martyrdom of St. Sebastian. Number two, he finds himself enraptured with a photo of Joan of Arc in all his masculine glory and masculine beauty. And then is massively disappointed, heartbroken to the point of suicide when he realizes that Joan of Arc was a woman. I don't know if that gives you any insight into Yukio Mishima's character, but I will say the books are actually quite good. So definitely read them the same as you would a book by Celine or any other insane right-wing writer who was actually a talented fiction writer. Nate from the Hell of Way to Die podcast? Yeah, my producer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, his writing is almost universally acclaimed by everyone. Um, it would be like if, I mean, there's no comparison. I can't think of anything else that's remotely close to this. Um, it's one of those things where you really do have to separate the art from the artists <laughs> because Mishima is a very problematic character as a whole, uh, but his writing is magnificent. I mean, okay, problematic yes but okay as a, as a psychology student right like you have to i i know it i okay it, it's how can i can i plug another podcast here without I'll be my guest okay so dax shepherd's yeah. a podcast i listen to a lot and he i don't think he needs any of my traffic but that's fine <laughs> no absolutely not but i i love it and he's very he's very good okay for an actor he's very good at looking into the psychology of a situation and everything sure. he's a member of aa he is very very open about his addiction and all of that stuff and um often you often, say that as i drink <laughs> often quotes um stuff from his aa practices and things like that yep. and one of his best um or i guess most often 
quotes is talking about excuses versus um, explanations. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that goes into a lot of psychology of people of, of, of people who do bad things. They, whether they excuse themselves for doing those bad things or explain themselves for doing those bad things. And I'm hearing a lot of explanations for why this man is about to do some very bad things. Right. And that's, that's why I, I, I chose to go back and read, just a ton of shit from the Japan Times who constantly reports on them. Um, just because like mo- almost everybody who's listening to this has probably heard about how this episode ends. It's not a secret. What isn't known is how the fuck we ended up there, uh, which is the important part in my opinion. Uh, because most people, ju- I'm, and I'm not going to ruin it yet because you have no idea how it ends. Nope, not a clue. Most people have no idea that he was this like internationally known writer who was so close to what he was one person away from uh, being uh, named a Nobel P, uh, Nobel prize winner three times for his writing. The only time he did not get it is because they recently picked a different Japanese writer and they didn't want to pick uh, two people from the same country back to back. So he kind of just got fucked out of it. <laughs> uh, like it's re- it would be like Stephen King or like JK Rowling flying a plane into a building in the name of Al Qaeda, like you just don't fucking see it coming. Uh, so J- J.K. Rowling would never do that. By the way, <laughs> let's just make that known. Uh, the woman who won't give up on her own series and just keeps. She's correct. a wonderful <laughs> fucking woman. Don't, don't, how, don't you dare. So how was that last movie? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> That's what I thought. She's going to. She's going to figure a way out of this mess. Alrighty. <laughs> okay. Uh, instead, uh, so the confessions of a mask became so popular that Misha became not only a national celebrity, but an international celebrity as the book was translated in English. Um, his new fame and fortune allowed him to travel across the world. Uh, now again, he became internationally famous writing a book on, uh, homosexual fiction in 1948. That's nuts. I don't think someone could have done that 20 years ago in the United States. No. That is nuts. That's, I mean, that's impressive, extremely right. impressive, and that's I'm very progressive and also very telling. Yeah. Uh, his, so his travels made his writing expand in new territory. This included some early sci-fi concepts in 1962, uh, which is pretty revolutionary. Sci-fi was very, very, very new at the time. And a book that followed a local politician during his run to be governor of Tokyo. Uh, while a little off the beaten path of what Mishima wrote about, the book uh, was so detailed that the politician actually sued him for invasion of privacy. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a good journalist when he wanted to, too. Um, now, that politician was named Harichio Arita. Uh, and just before I anybody feels sorry for this weird guy stalking him and writing a book about him, he was actually credited for the origination of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Uh, this was also known as the Imperial Japanese philosophy for the entire second world war. So, uh, don't feel too sorry for him. <laughs> he was an asshole. Uh, it was around this time that Mishima became obsessed with his physical health. Uh, maybe it was because before he was considered too sickly to join the army, which had to still be gnawing at him. Uh, this included eating, uh, as well as anybody would imagine, but also a nearly religious devotion to lifting weights. Uh, this work, he would work out multiple times a day, I can't understand every that. day. Uh, it was claimed he did not miss a single day of working out for the last 15 years of his life. 
and he is fucking yoked. Um, you can pull up some pictures of him. I'll post them on the Twitter page, but like always take rest days. Yeah. Uh, he never did. The closest thing he took to rest days was just writing in between workouts. No, you should, you should definitely, if you're, if you're out there listening to this, rest days are very important to your workout regimen. Uh, I'm in the, the mode of you need to go full Mishima, never quit doing anything and then ritualistically kill yourself. False. (laughs) (laughs) None of that is true. Listeners. Uh, he also devoted himself to kendo or Japanese sword fighting and would eventually become an expert in that as well. Uh, because again, he literally never failed at anything until the end of his life. Uh, he wrote multiple essays that decried his fellow writers and intellectuals for putting the mind over the body. I think that we should allow the uh, listeners to have their own opinion on whether he failed at the end of his life. That's fair. Or not. He succeeded in something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so let's all listen here and let's all make our own conclusions. The, the concept of success is relative. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will assume uh, this is the Kabuki theater way of asking, uh, "Do you even lift, bro?" When, like when he, like, I, he looked around to all like the pencil neck dorks who wrote books at like his whatever publishing company work, and he, he worked at, and was like, "You'd be cooler if you did some fucking bench." <laughs> Do you even Leviosa? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of this uh, lifting left him pretty fucking huge and ripped, so he naturally also became a model and actor. Because why not? <laughs> Uh, this guy's what, really got it going on. Uh, one of the magazines he modeled for was called Young Samurai Bodybuilders of Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and an American uh, photographer designated an entire photo shoot that had Mishima standing in the snow wearing nothing but a loincloth and swinging a sword around. <laughs> hot. <laughs> I mean, cold, but hot. <laughs> it doesn't have to make sense. It's fucking art. <laughs> Uh, he was also considered, but ultimately passed for the Nobel Prize in three different occasions, like I just said. Uh, at, uh, by this point, Mishima was so famous and rich and well-connected that other families began to approach him to set up a marriage. Um, like I said, he was still technically connected to the aristocracy, and they still very much believed in arranged marriages for <laughs> for power broking and stuff like that. Always got to love a good arranged marriage. Yeah. Someone who did not uh, love a good arranged marriage was Mishima. Uh, um, probably because. Yeah, uh, he was at least bi. Uh, we can't s- say for sure he was gay. No, but I mean, all of the gay literature probably points to a strong... Hey, his sexuality was very fluid throughout his life. I will say that much. Um, I mean, do we have like um, facts of him having sexual relations with anyone? Oh, yeah, he had two kids. Oh, that's good. Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. Mishima. Uh, now, while his ideas on homosexuality and sexual fluidity are very progressive, his thoughts on women were not. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> Most closeted gay men don't like women. You know, I'll say it probably because he learned to hate women at a very young age from his very abusive grandmother. I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, but so he did not want to get married. Um, but one of the women, uh, that was presented to him for marriage was a young woman named Michiko Shoda, who is a very successful woman from a very powerful family in Japan. Mishima did everything he could to sink this proposal as fast as he, as he humanly could. Uh, he purposely missed dates and did not shave before meeting for the first time. Uh, he also put out increasingly harsh terms for marrying him. So, so he grew a sexy beard. No, I, I would assume if, like, if he grew it to look bad, I assume it's like a bunch of patchy pubes. Like, if you can grow a good beard, you're not going to grow a good beard to try to piss somebody off. Yeah, but 
it de- it depends on your culture, I guess, because yeah, true. I don't know. He was. I mean, I would assume uh, I never saw any pictures of any Japanese emperors with beards, so maybe it's like passe. I don't know. I liked having a beard. Yeah. Uh, um, you had a nice beard at one point. I miss it. Uh, so he decided to put out terms for marrying him. And this is outside the normal terms that like arranged marriages would have. And this included that she could absolutely never interrupt his workouts, his writing or his reading. Uh, and that, that meant like pretty much she just couldn't come around him. Cause that's, a, that's <laughs> all he did. Speak to me, look at me or yeah. enter the room that I am yeah. in. <laughs> Those are literally the only three things he did. Uh, eventually the proposal withdrawn because the family, her family got sick of his shit. Um, now, I know none of you are wondering whatever happened to Miss Shota. Uh, and I will say that she definitely won the breakup because uh, <laughs> Miss Shota would go on to marry one Imperial Prince Akihito and become Empress of Japan in 1989. Go Miss Shota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, her son will be the next Emperor of Japan. Uh, so she won. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, if we're keeping score. <laughs> yeah. I think I think we should in that case. <laughs> like... She's like, hey, remember that time I almost married a fucking Pulitzer Prize winning writer? Still came out on top of that one. Uh, so, uh, though he tried as hard as he could, Mishima could not escape marriages for long. And he ended up being forced into one in 1958 to a woman named Yoko Shugamaya. Uh, and if you're wondering why he had to be forced into marrying a woman, it was because around the same time he got married, he uh, spent his free time hanging around Japan's gay bars. Uh, at this point... I feel like you're just proving my point here. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think he's more complicated than that. Uh, I think he's, he's a, he's a very complex character that you can't just label him a closeted gay man. Okay. I'm going to let you keep telling the story and then I'm going to give you my opinion at the end. Uh, now this is something Yoko who is still alive, uh, vehemently denies. Uh, it's hard to argue though. Um, I feel like she's just trying to defend some outdated sense of honor. Uh, and I don't blame her because, it's hard to accept you married a guy who is also into other people uh, who you in no way can please him in the way that he is looking for. I think Uh, most women who marry closeted gay men feel that way. (laughs) So it is hard to argue that Mishima was in those gay bars because he entired he published an entire book about it. Uh, It is called Forbidden Colors. While the previous Confessions of a Mask was considered semi-autobiographical, Colors went even further. Its main character is a gay middle-aged writer trapped in a loveless marriage. (laughs) You're not doing much to prove your own point here. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure some people are wondering why he got married at all. Um, Honor. Uh, Kind of. I think it had a lot to do with his career. I mean, if you think... America was sexually repressive in the 1950s. Japan was even worse. I think America is still sexually repressive. America is absolutely still sexually repressive. (laughs) And again, Japan is still worse. (laughs) Uh, Also, uh, he was a man who was near 30 years old and uh, not getting married was uh, was a a reason to eye you a suspicion or doubt and possibly not give you work. Um, To make matters worse, his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And he, I mean, his dad and his grandma were giant pieces of shit, but he loved his mother. And he knew one of the last things his mom wanted to see before she died was to see him get married. So he took the plunge. Mm-hmm. That's very nice. Uh, so, I mean, at this point, Mishima sounds kind of normal, right? Like, sure, he has some personal issues going on with the conflict of his sexuality, which we can all understand, um, and in a quasi-forced marriage. But I assume... All of that was really common for a 
a gay man or a bisexual man in the 50s and 60s and even today. So for all of the shit that he's been through, yes, absolutely. He seems very normal. So he's so normal, you might be asking, why in the fuck are we talking about him? Well, I'm very (laughs) overly intelligent, which... which, Oh, yeah. 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 He he is incredible. He is a very very critical deep thinker to the yeah. point that like I don't like making fun of him, even though he did a lot of dumb shit late in his life. Um, so good news, everybody. This is where shit's gonna fly off the rails. <laughs> um, first and foremost, Mishima is a rigid, insane imperial nationalist. Um, so extreme was his beliefs in Japanese imperialism that after World War II, he denounced the emperor himself for renouncing his divinity. <clears throat> Contrary to what your president might say, nationalism is not a good thing. No, no. I mean, we're a pretty outspoken left-wing podcast, so it's not a hot take. No. <laughs> um, now, like I said before, renouncing his divinity was uh, an unconditional part of the surrender to the, the allies at the end of World War II. Even though he still considered... Like, he completely ignored what Hirohito said about renouncing his divinity. He still absolutely believed the imperial throne was the source of divinity. But he still was also like, shame on you, Jesus. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he believed the emperor was a living god on earth. And by de- denouncing his godliness, the millions of Japanese soldiers who died during the war had all died in vain. Because remember, they're all fighting in the name of the god emperor. I can see that. I mean, that 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 actually seems reasonable. Yeah. Uh, he was also a hardcore believer in a concept known as kokatai. I might be pronouncing that wrong. My Japanese is a bit rusty. Uh, <laughs> the idea was that the divine emperor embodied the national soul of Japan in human form. And without a god emperor on the throat of Japan, the entire country was lost and directionless. Uh, it was considered state dogma until the end of the war, at which point it began kind of illegal to circulate. Like the... Um, the Supreme Allied Command, like the Occupation Force, made literature about Kokutai uh, illegal because they they needed to dethrone the emperor without you know putting him on trial for war crimes because they needed some kind of figurehead to keep the country together, but they didn't want him to be God. So like what he believed was literally illegal. <laughs> um, now most of the entire nation had moved on from these beliefs, um, or at least at the very least they kept them to themselves. Uh, according to Mishima's biographer, a guy named John Nathan, this intense extremism was born by his grandmother's brainwashing and abuse as a child. But many Japanese kids at the same time had the same kind of upbringing. Uh, the main difference, most of those kids went on to fight, get wounded, or die in World War II. So they eventually, like a lot of people who end up fighting in wars, became incredibly disillusioned in what they were fighting for. And then when things came crumbling around around them, they're like, yeah, all right. I kind of figured this is all bullshit. Not really is bullshit. Mishima never got to go do that. Uh, since that bad tuberculosis diagnosis, he didn't have the opportunity to go get disillusioned. Uh, his failure to serve the emperor was made worse by his entire family telling him he was a disappointment for not being able to fight and die like all of his neighbors. Um, according to Nathan, that deep shame never left Mishima, and instead of getting on with his life, he overcorrected to the extreme and ramped up his imperial loyalty long after the rest of Japan let it die. Um, for the rest of Mishima's life, he'd attempt to fix that shame. Like he he swung so far over to make up for like that dishonor that he flew far off the fucking deep end of rationality. Um to that end, Mishima enlisted in the Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force in 1967. How old was he at this point? 42. 
<laughs> Why was he allowed to do this? Also, mind you, this he is a multi-millionaire celebrity. <laughs> Why is he allowed to do this? Uh, and uh, remember, he always wanted to serve in the Imperial Army. This is not the Imperial Army. So is this like a... like? So like, he... He finally got to do what he always wanted to do, and that was be in the army. But, right. But there wasn't an army anymore. It was a self defense <laughs> force. Um, like only in re- only in recent years were this was the Japanese self defense force allowed to have jets and a navy and all this other stuff. Like they were possibly one step above like a national guard, uh, but like in the traditional concepts of the national guard, like only there for disaster relief or if you get invaded. I think it was very recently that they were allowed to have like jets and a Navy and stuff like that. Um, But like in the sixties, light infantry at best, but also remember he's a 42 year old millionaire enlisting as a private. So he's like an honorary member. Except he actually went out and like trained with them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, imagine being in basic training class and like a three time Nobel prize nominee and international celebrity fucking shows up. Uh, it's like, I mean, the way that like Tom Cruise would show up, like trying to get ready for a movie role or something like, right. Except like he's your bunk mate now. Cause like <laughs> he actually went through basic training and shit when he was fucking 42 years old. <laughs> I mean, it didn't matter though. Right. He was finally going to do what he always wanted to do. Serve the God emperor. Except like he wasn't anymore. Uh, except like none of his ideas jived with like the new JSDF at all. And so like Mishima got pissed. Like he showed up, he wanted to serve the emperor, do all the shit he wanted to do when he was a fucking teenager. And like everybody just kind of laughed at him. So he got fucking disillusioned and angry. So he did what any other adult does. He wouldn't create his own goddamn army. He should be used to people laughing at him and making fun of him at this point. He's 42. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's been super famous for like over a decade. I guess, but his childhood wasn't, Easy. Yeah, I, mean, I guess his like weird fucking. I, I don't know, he he thought way too deep about like everything, and that's why like well clearly the army isn't what I need to do. I'm gonna go make my own army, and that's what he did. He fucking made his own army. You don't just make your own army. You make your own army if you have a lot of money. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, he called it the uh, Tatanokai or the Shield Society. Uh, it would be based around the banned ideas of Kokotai and the veneration of the emperor. So, I mean, I get that he's super famous. I mean, but who the hell would join this fucking militant emperor cult? Like, it, I can't think of, like, of, a, of a comparable thing here in the U.S., but, like, who would join, uh, like, a Stephen King-based militia? <laughs> a lot of people. Like, so many people. Are okay, you kidding that's fair. me? That's fair. <laughs> a Stephen King. I might join that. <laughs> Uh, you do basic training in the sewers with Pennywise. Fuck yeah. Uh, well, he mostly poached college students. Um, <laughs> Mishima knew where his ideas circulated the most. Right-wing student groups. No, that's got to be super easy. College students who have read his work before and who are, I mean, college students are ex- especially vulnerable and impressionable because yeah. they're extremely stressed out, especially in Japan where the where the education standards are so fucking high anyways. And ultra competitive. Yeah, and ultra competitive. And, and they're extremely stressed out and they're looking for any little way to validate what they're doing. So, yeah. yeah, if you if you come up and tell a college student, "Hey, this 
you know, especially if you're extremely educated and smart like he is, like this is, you know, exactly what you need to validate everything that you've been through. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he went around the groups of students that probably would be receptive to his ideas. Yeah. I mean, right I mean right wing in Japan isn't right wing in the US, not how people think of it today. Well, and college students are still they're they're testing the waters. They're away from their parents right. for the first time and they're testing the waters of their own belief systems and their own thoughts and their right. own like it's so easy to get in there and say, "I know that this is what you think your thoughts are and your belief systems are, but this is what it actually should be." And especially like he was a very intellectual person and he knew where he could find people who thought they were as intellectual as him. Oh yeah. And so he went to right-wing writing groups, uh, more specifically a college newspaper called the Ronso journal at Kanagawa university. Almost all of his recruits came from that one place and he got fucking over 90 people. (laughs) Uh, so I mean, his ideas weren't super receptive, but like, I can't think of an idea I could get 90 people to follow me to do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His group would gather at his house, which I'm sure was super popular with his wife, or retreats out in the woods where they had listened to Mishima speak for hours on end about nationalism, the holiness of the emperor, and the betrayal of Hirohito, sexuality, and working out. He also designed their own uniforms because what cult is complete without a uniform? And because of his obsession with the army, they were based on the old Imperial Army officer uniform that was no longer used in the JSDF. Uh, It would be paired with white gloves and a sweet headband that said, Seven Lives for the Nation, written across it. Every good uniform needs a headband. Mishima and his men would also wear swords. (laughs) (laughs) Which, again, was totally illegal. Uh, So Mishima's philosophy changed from uh, being conflicted about his sexuality to leaning into it uh, pretty hardcore. He preached that being gay wasn't just the way that he was born, which is progressive for the 60s. It made him stronger. Um, Now, this is where I told you before that he didn't he wasn't just gay. He legitimately did not like women Uh, uh, to him. Women made you weak and were nothing but extra weight that need to be cast off as soon as possible. Uh, Like the the very literal ball and chain. (laughs) It wasn't that he was uh, sexually attracted to men as much as he really fucking hated women. Not surprising. <laughs> uh, so in between long sermons about emperor and fucking, the tent no kai constantly worked out as the rest of the recruits were expected to work out just as hard as Mishima himself. That's right. Yokio Mishima created the world's first CrossFit gym. <laughs> um, and I know and I know that we both used to do CrossFit. Um, I still do CrossFit just by myself instead of in a gym. Yeah. Uh, I mean, think about it, though. The f- Flags everywhere while people preach about shit they only half understand, constantly working out. And half the people are only there to fuck. <laughs> like, it's CrossFit. Look. If they didn't understand. Like, he never fucking worked out. He never took a rest day. His form was probably terrible. I've been doing CrossFit for about <laughs> six years. I accepted a long time ago that CrossFit is absolutely a cult. <laughs> it's just a very good one where you get healthy and fit and have a great community behind you. I mean... It, that's every cult, right? Uh, up until revolutionary suicide, yeah. <laughs> okay, so... It's revolutionary suicide. <laughs> so CrossFit hasn't gone that far yet. Yet. Yes. It took Jonestown like a decade. But it's, it's <laughs> definitely a cult. Like, it absolutely is. 
And much like CrossFit in uh, Mishima's world, the approach worked. Uh, not only did his students develop an undying loyalty for the emperor, but also to Mishima himself. Uh, one of them, a Masakatsu Morita, wrote a pledge to the man declaring his willingness to die for him. Uh, it is also heavily implicated by Nathan that Morita and Mishima began a re- relationship after this. Um, they were nearly inseparable. Multiple eyewitnesses saw them dating, things like that. But there, Aww, he fell in love. There's no writing by Mishima or Morita himself that said, like, this is my boyfriend or anything like that. There's no, They never made any outward declarations like that. I have to say at this point that I'm rooting for him. That might change. Um, I, don't, I don't know that it will. Now, this is normally where you think Mishima would probably have gotten in trouble. Uh, He was an enlisted soldier who ran off into the woods to build his own weird militant imperial sex cult that swore to reinstall the emperor to absolute power, which is treason. Uh, His officers were also, uh, you know, they they had to, like, bring the hammer down on him, right? Like, imagine if you're an active duty military. Run off to the woods and make your own militia. See how that works out. Yeah, no, I'd I'd definitely be arrested. Yeah, like fame or no fame, you're at least going to get kicked out. Uh, well, the Japanese government thought differently. Uh, in fact, they allowed these crazed bastards to actually start training alongside the self-defense force. What? <laughs> That's right. I mean, I remember, technically, not, uh, Mishima's in the army. Self-defense force, whatever. Uh, and, I mean, he's super famous. It's, it's like when Elvis fucking got drafted and, and didn't defer it. He, he was a recruiting goal. Like... Look, you could serve alongside the greatest writer in the country. Uh, so they were just like, yeah, whatever your fucking weird dudes can come join with us too. <laughs> it should be noted that Japan has a very long history of right-wing groups. Uh, they're actually kind of famous for driving around heavily populated areas in weird box trucks outfitted with very loud sound systems and blurring pro-imperial slogans for hours. This goes on to this day. <laughs> Sounds pretty cult-like to me. Yeah, they they wear headbands and carry flags everywhere, but they're also like a super minority. Like, they're not popular. Uh, but it should be noted that um, none of these groups were ever allowed to go train with the army. Uh, Mishimus was different. Uh, one year and some change after the formation of the Tent Nokai, Mishima and his small army began to plan the takeover of Japan. Uh, now, they lacked firearms, as firearms ownership is incredibly rare in Japan to this day, and it was even more rare back then, and the JSDF kept all of their weapons tightly secure, and mind you, they didn't have a ton of weapons. Um, they also lacked popular support. 90 people is only a lot when you think of how crazy it is Mishima was able to find 90 people who agreed with him. Uh, it isn't a lot when you are thinking about taking over a country of 100 million people. Also, like, for a small group of, like, 90 people to take over a government, you have to think, like, a couple dozen of them have to actually be members of the government or high-ranking members of the military. He had none of those things. <laughs> uh, he had a whole bunch of college journalists with swords. Uh, but they wouldn't need numbers either, though. Mishima's plan was to lean on his strengths. Uh, those, of course, being writing and entertainment. Uh, the only thing they would need to do is get him in front of an audience of soldiers, and surely they would swoon on every single one of his words and march to Tokyo to put the emperor back in uh, power. There's kind of a fair amount of validity I'm willing to give that. I mean, look how much power celebrities have over the political discourse of the United States. Um, at this point, Japan's a pretty young democracy. I mean, this is... Our president is a celebrity. 
Right. He was given the Stone Cold Stunner once on Monday Night Raw. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> we, I, we do have... Um, now, you can say a lot of things about America, and most of them are true, uh, good and bad. Um, you can also say that we have the highest number of people in a political cabinet that Stone Cold Steve Austin has fought, <laughs> which is two. <laughs> so there's that. Um <laughs> Uh, but I mean, if you think of how much power celebrities have and the JSDF is all enlisted, most like uh, most voluntary enlistment militaries, they come from a lower social economic background. They they kind of would be into this sort of thing, uh, hypothetically. Um, he ended up being very fucking wrong, but like I could, could kind of see why he thought this would work. Um <laughs> So even though he had 90 people at his disposal, Mishimoto only used four. Uh, as his plan required them to be, you know, inconspicuous. You couldn't just walk into somewhere with 90 people behind you. Everybody's like, well, this is normal. Yeah, you um, could see that. It's hard to roll into a military base with 100 people behind you and not, like, get stopped. I mean, he is a really smart guy. Yeah. Uh, so Mishima brought only his most loyal followers. Morita, uh, his boyfriend slash second command, uh, Matsuyoshi Koga, Hirayasho Koga, and Matsuhiro Ogawa. Those would be the four people he'd bring with him to uh, attempt to take over the entire country. <laughs> um, and it should be noted that like none of them had any military training or anything outside of what they did at the JSDF. Eh, they'll be right. Also, they didn't have guns. <laughs> <laughs> Minor detail. They have their brains, Joe. Uh, that's right. So on the morning of November 25th, 1970, Mishima and his band of crossfitting samurai drove through the gates of the Ichigaya camp. Uh, it was the entire JSDF Eastern Command and held the entire army of Eastern Japan. Okay. Let me just say something right here. I, as I said, I've been a crossfitter for about six <laughs> years now. But you're not a samurai. No. <laughs> I know at least four crossfitters who think think that they could take over the country with their, with just their crossfitting skills. I <laughs> At least. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. Like, there are definitely crossfitters out there who have such high opinions of themselves that think that they that uh, this is possible. Yeah, I'm sort of kettlebell swing my way into power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me do some handstand walks through this uh, base here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, this was not a master plan or anything. They just drove through the fucking gates. This was not Fort Knox. <laughs> Actually, you know, I wrote that, but it's it's not entirely true. Um, I once got onto Fort Knox with just a pair of dog tags. <laughs> I was also smuggled onto Fort Knox in a trunk because I was drunk and underage. Yeah, I smuggled a few people into... F I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Retract that, that previous statement. <laughs> you said it. You can't unsay it. Um, Nobody knows what I was going to say. Uh, so once they're inside the base, they hired to the commander's office where they ran to one General Masuda. And then they took him prisoner at Sword Point. Oh, yeah, right. The swords. They had swords on them, uh, which is something that the person at the front gate probably should have noticed. Like, like nah, four dudes with swords. That's normal. In a completely different uniform because they're wearing their fucking uh, Shield Society uniform. And they're and he's not wearing his JSDF uniform. But also the other guys with him. We're not the JSDF. So they have like the worst gate guards in human history. <laughs> The really salty guys that had to work the weekend. Yeah. Uh, they pushed the general back into his office and demanded that he order the entire Eastern Army to form up in a parade field just outside of his office. Uh, the general's accountant, who was a major, lunged out and tried to protect Masuda. And he was awarded by getting slashed across the back with a sword. And then he ran down the hallway because he was being fucking attacked with swords. 
Yeah, reasonable. After seeing that, the general, probably not wanting to get fucking shanked, obeyed and called all of his soldiers uh, into a formation so they could be addressed by Mishima. You know, I feel at this point, Mishima kind of felt like a dog who actually caught the truck that he's chasing. Because, like, do you really think he was going to get this far? Like, even in his wildest dreams, did he really think he was going to get to talk to an entire army? Because, like, a thousand fucking soldiers were formed up pretty quickly just below the balcony. I mean, do do they have guns? No. no none of, nobody's armed. The army doesn't have guns? They're all locked away. Uh, I mean, they're... I mean, imagine, I know when I was in the army, um, and much like you probably deal with now, how long do you, does it take for a company to get weapons from an arms room? Okay, to get the actual <laughs> weapon. And is there, is there any ammo in the arms room? No. Yeah. That, well, the, the, ammo, the ammo is a key there. You can ass- And since the JSDF is being trained and advised by the United States military, you can assume they have pretty much the same protocols. Yeah, because I can go and get my weapon in about five seconds, but... The ammo takes, like, paperwork at least three months in advance. <laughs> now, now imagine there's a thousand whoa, people. Whoa. Anybody out of the country listening to this, we are very highly. <laughs> I don't even know. I can't even say this with a straight face. Yeah, you can just walk right in. Uh, our military is mostly just drunk and asleep, so it's all good. Um, so, uh, with the entire army, uh like formed up ready to talk to uh I'm, you know i feel like this is the, a pretty big condemnation for the strength and the security of the jsdf or just how goddamn famous mishima was like i can't believe this actually worked uh on you know this is like if like i don't know name a famous writer like james patterson or something walked into fort lewis carrying a sword and kidnapped the fucking post commander i honestly don't think that anybody knew what james patterson would look like yeah i couldn't pick him up a lineup and most people in the american army don't read unfortunately yeah they just read chris kyle's books <laughs> i don't even <laughs> think they do that they just watch the movies <laughs> yeah uh, slowly the army assembled and just like any group of soldiers forced to do anything they bitch and complain the whole time uh, they showed up out of uniform and half-dressed, which is kind of a hilarious contrast to Mishima himself in his tent nokai uniform, like with white gloves and a headband. And yeah, so according to the Japan Times, at least a thousand people showed up. Uh, Mishima, being a natural performer, stepped up onto the edge of the balcony and began his speech by screaming, all of you are unconstitutional. And the rest of his men started throwing off fistfuls of leaflets to like, Tell them the message. Like the other four? Then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a strong start. I mean, <laughs> now the, the the belief pretty much boiled down to he thought the entire Japanese government was unconstitutional because it wasn't blessed by the emperor and led by the emperor. There's Reasonable. No, there is a lot more to that, uh, but that's pretty much what it boils down to. Uh, Mishima's speech did not have the effect he thought it would. Uh, almost immediately, the gathered soldiers began to boo and jeer him. They <laughs> they began to throw things up at the uh, balcony and mock his hand gestures because, like, he was. I mean, imagine like the the stage presence of Freddie Mercury, all the fist pumping and shit. The, he was. I mean, Mishima was kind of doing that, and uh, all the soldiers were just like laughing at him and fucking doing like fake ones below him. Are you implying that they would laugh at Freddie Mercury? Yeah, probably. No, absolutely not. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends. Is Freddie Mercury going to climb the balcony and like, you guys should totally take over the government, darling. I hope so. <laughs> uh, eventually, the booing got so loud, Mishima couldn't even hear himself speak. <laughs> uh, 
he cut his uh, and now he originally had a incredibly long speech written uh, but he memorized the whole thing so he didn't bring any paperwork with him <laughs> and i'll post the whole thing but i'm not gonna read the whole thing it is probably 10 pages long uh but he cut his speech short saying quote Japanese people think today of only money, just money. Where is our national spirit today? The Jitai must be the soul of Japan. And the Jitai is like the imperial throne. Uh, quote, the nation has no spiritual foundation. This is why you don't agree with me. You will just be American mercenaries. All of you in a tiny world, you do nothing for Japan. I, I salute the emperor. Long live the emperor. Uh, Mishima and his men retreated back into the building, defeated. Uh, he complained that he wasn't even sure if anybody could hear him. <laughs> Yeah, buddy, they couldn't hear you. That's why they didn't want you to follow, yeah. follow you into fucking re-enthroning the emperor. I'm sure that's what his followers told him. Probably. Uh, that is when Mishima ripped open his jacket. And uh, I'll take the rest from the Japan Times article titled The Lost Samurai. Quote, he positioned himself in a traditional Japanese manner on the floor of the office which they had seized. Mishima proceeded to ritually disembowel himself with a tanto, which is a, a short sword, exclaiming, long live the emperor. Uh, now, there's a problem with committing seppuku, which is um, ritual suicide. Now, there's a lot of people who think uh, harikiri is ritual suicide and seppuku is ritual suicide. They're both technically correct. Uh, seppuku is the actual act of ritual suicide, which includes the entire um, ceremony and everything before that. Harikiri is pretty much just gutting yourself. Um, it's pretty fucking painful. You don't die quickly whatsoever, which was the whole point. Uh, the whole point of seppuku was to voluntarily inflict a ton of pain and suffering on yourself to retain your honor. Um, because honorable death apparently can't be quick if you're a samurai. It has to just really suck. Uh, that is why samurai came up with like a loophole. And that is the idea to have a Kaya Shikunin or a dude waiting behind you with a sword to slice your fucking head off just as soon as you stab yourself. Like you have to commit to the act of seppuku, gut yourself, and then he immediately cuts your head off. So you'd feel almost nothing. Um, that is if the guy cutting your head off knew what he was doing because Marita did not. Um, because Mishima loved Marita and they were very, very close, he picked Marita to be his uh, Kaya Shakunin, which is a uh, real is a super honorable position to have to be in charge of beheading a fellow samurai. Unfortunately, Marita was the worst swordsman in the entire Shield Society, and he just like embedded the sword in the back of fucking Mishima's head. It did not kill him. Should have trained him better. They did kendo all the time. I don't know how he was this bad with the sword. Wait, so he didn't actually kill anyone? Mishima never killed anybody. Oh, he just really fucked himself up. Marita actually. Well, Marita didn't kill him. Marita fucked him up even worse. And I'm 100 percent on his fault, on his on his team, on his side. <laughs> so he chopped into the back of his skull like he was trying to cut fucking firewood. Ooh. And then Marita began to freak out and gave the sword to a different guy, uh, Hiryaso Koga, who was a significantly better samurai. He still had the wherewithal to like hand the sword over to somebody else. Marita had to. <sighs> Uh, oh, I thought you I thought you meant Mishima. No, at this point, Mishima is probably unconscious because he has a sword embedded in the back of his head. so? Um, Ouch. Koga pulled the sword out of his head and successfully beheaded him on the second attempt. Ugh. Then Morita gutted himself and Koga beheaded him too. Um, it was around now that the... Uh, so, like, the whole time this is happening, the officers of the Eastern Army are trying to retake the office. Um, the shield society guys had barricaded them in, uh, barricaded themselves into the office 
and nobody really could get in. So at, at this point, they finally busted down the doors. And when they found the two surviving men praying over the severed heads of their comrades, uh, a journalist for the Asai Shimbun newspaper, who um, I think it's like the second largest newspaper in Japan, uh, who had been with the rescue party, pushed everybody past the snap and snapped a single picture of Mishima's head. Uh, it ran on the front page of the newspaper the next day and has been the best-selling issue of the paper ever since. Uh, so, yeah, tasteful journalism. Uh, you can actually see that. I'm not going to post it to Twitter because I don't feel like getting our account banned, but you can Google search and find it if you really like. Uh, I did. <laughs> and uh, you actually can hardly tell he got a sword embedded in the back of his head at some point. That's nice. Uh, so the survivors, as you can imagine, were arrested and put on trial for illegal possession of swords, bodily injury, and assisting a suicide. Uh, if you noticed, uh, none of those charges were treason or, you know, subversion, nothing like that. The government did not take this seriously at all. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they didn't get very far. No, but I mean, they did fucking slice the dude's back open and then kill themselves in the <laughs> middle of an army base. No, but I mean, as far as actually like taking over anything, they no, didn't no. get very far. They like, that was all, that was all a part of their plan. So. Right. I mean, they, they definitely like the, the government. Now the government had, they knew Mishima. Uh, there were several members of the parliament who were close friends with him and actually were pretty sympathetic to his beliefs. Um, and he actually timed this whole thing during the opening session of the parliament. Now, um, the thing about the opening session of the Japanese parliament is kind of like, I think they do the same thing in England, where on the opening day, the, the monarch shows up to kind of like this. I authorize this. It's a ceremony. So the emperor was present in parliament as news began to spread that a guy was attempting to take over the government in his name. Um, that. Obviously, the emperor had nothing to say about the whole thing. Uh, pretty much everybody called Mishima stupid on the parliament floor. Uh, nobody really thought this was a threat to Japanese democracy. <laughs> <laughs> you mean him and the four guys that right. walked onto a military base? Yeah. Uh, they were So they were all put on trial and sentenced to four years, but got out in only a few months. Um, now, this is where we have to ask the real question. Was Mishima really trying to take over the government? Like, did he really think this whole thing was going to work? Um, I mean, was the legendary writer really so stupid to think that an army would rally at his back and restore the throne? In short, no. Um, that's pretty obvious. Uh, now, you can look at the, the logical aspect of this, or you can look at what Mishima himself said in his writing before he gutted himself. Um, first-hand organization around 90 people um, and only brought four with him. There's a very good chance he could have gotten all 90 people into the base uh, because of his connections or because of the fact he was fucking training with them. But he didn't. Uh, in the weeks after they came up with a plan to take over the government, literally the only thing they, re they rehearsed or planned was the act of ritual suicide that they would commit. So you think this whole thing was just an elaborate way to commit? Kind of. Uh, Mishima even went so far as to only allow two of them to die, uh, him and Morita. The other, uh, and the other guys that were going were pretty pissed off about that. They all wanted to die. Um, hmm. Also, Mishima had written pretty much for years about doing exactly what he did, uh, only in so many words. Uh, he even said as much in an interview saying, quote, Spiritually, I wanted to revive some samurai spirit. I did not want to revive Harakiri itself, 
But through the vision of a very strong vision of Harikiri, I want to inspire and stimulate younger people. So he went further saying, quote, dying for a great cause was considered the most glorious, heroic, and brilliant ways of dying. So instead of actually taking over a country, he wanted to draw as much attention to himself as possible so he could fucking butcher himself in the worst way possible to inspire the youth. It's also meant as a giant fuck you to post-war Japan. Uh, Japan Times said, quote, Thus, Mishima's longing for a samurai-style ritual suicide would somehow atone for the misdirection of modern post-war Japan and inspire future generations while satisfying his own fixation with death. It would seem a more plausible explanation for his actions on that day. The failed coup provided Mishima with such an opportunity. His dramatic death has been seen as a final yet futile stand against the direction of post-war Japan. Uh, so you can kind of, I don't know. It's, it's hard to put that in context. Like it's hard to think of somebody who, I don't know, maybe like the, so one of the most prolific or famous, uh, photographs ever taken, uh, was a Buddhist monk, uh, burning himself alive in Vietnam. And it's very obvious that that Buddhist monk, I mean, he was protesting the, the treatment of uh, government oppression against Buddhists because uh, the, the government of South Vietnam was Catholic, thanks to the French. But um, he knew burning himself was not going to end that oppression, but he knew that killing himself in the most fantastic way possible and for the most amount of eyes possible would bring the most amount of uh, attention to his cause. As a statement. Yeah. That's what I see this as. Obviously, Mishima is friends weren't being oppressed but it was a giant spectacle well no but you don't have to be oppressed to have a certain belief system right i mean this and now this is known as the the mishima incident in japan uh it was kind of like if your shitty boomer uncle set himself on fire to protest millennials like he was really really upset with the newest generation of japan like it was the first generation being raised by people who were not his generation like there that huge disconnect between what he thought was real traditional Japan and the real traditional belief system. Like he was trying to stop the process of time. Somehow it doesn't seem at, at like I I see where it should seem really outlandish that this is all that that this is his reaction to it, but it doesn't. It doesn't seem that outlandish that he would have this reaction to it. Uh, yeah, I He's definitely the most extreme product of his time. I think it, it was a really strange artistic political protest. I think, like, I still think it was a cult, though. Oh yeah, I I agree. I think that it was a cult, and I think that it's kind of the perfect storm of uh, puzzle pieces to go together because I think there's probably other people who have the same beliefs that he does. I mean, Oh, they certainly didn't die with him. No, but just, but just like in America, there are people who think that this younger generation is, is warped and that this political system is, is bullshit and all of that stuff. But but no, yeah, but (laughs) none of them, none of them are going to kill themselves or make a spectacle over their beliefs. But sometimes you have this perfect storm scenario where you had this type of upbringing you have this type of uh, affliction and you have this type of uh 
let's say sexuality that's not necessarily accepted by people and you have this type of psychology that where all of those things perfectly come together into something where it turns into a spectacle and that's that's your reaction and that's what happens yeah i mean it was definitely a per- perfect storm of a really fucked up childhood and then like being born in a really strange time that he you know i feel like if he was born or if world war 2 never would have happened um or if it did happen and japan wasn't so thoroughly destroyed this just wouldn't have happened yeah like he he was a very unique byproduct of a really weird time yeah that's that's kind of what what i get from this story like i don't i don't feel i don't feel like i i feel like he's more a victim than anything in this whole scenario like yeah he he probably overreacted a little bit well he also (laughs) got a whole bunch of college kids to get on it and one of them killed themselves yeah so that's an issue yeah it is it is now not a lot is known about marita Uh, marita didn't write a ton he didn't leave a diary behind mishima himself didn't write a lot about marita which is kind of heartbreaking but you know we don't really know his motivation because that wasn't why marita was killing himself marita was Marita absolutely killed himself for Mishima. Yeah. He was devoted to him 100%. So Mishima is still kind of a fucking asshole for dragging that kid into it. True. But it's, it's not as bad as it could have been, I guess, if he had a, if he, if he had a quote unquote cult of 90 college students right. following him and, and him and one other person were the. Right. Byproduct. I, I guess I that seems kind of disillusioned, I guess, with our American mentality where we've had so many death cults and so many mass mass deaths. Yeah. Where if only one person plus his lover were the right. <laughs> were the sacrifice here, that's that's not really Yeah, I don't know. Like I think I mean those four people went with him because they were the ones that he knew would like go along with it. Yeah. Like I think he knew that there was a lot of people that were following him that totally weren't into it. I just feel like it's kind of tragic though. Like, oh yeah. More more than more than anything else, more than malicious or anything. I I just feel like it's kind of tragic. Yeah. And you know, he leaves behind a problematic legacy for like the literary circles of Japan because like they want to remember him as being like this amazing artists but he has been canonized as a weird right-wing hero ever since so like his funeral was held in january 24th 1971 and was attended by over 10,000 people most of those people were writers um the entire surviving tent nokai uh, attended in full uniform uh the same month right-wing groups in japan began to mysteriously bankroll multiple statues of him and Marita all around the country. Uh, there's even reports of several copycat suicides uh, in high schools and colleges. It's almost a hundred percent certain that those copycat suicides were because of the death of an artist, not the death of like a militant. Yeah. Not the political. That happens a lot. That happens in America. Uh, Oh yeah. There was, I think over a dozen copycat suicides when Kurt Cobain killed himself in this area. I think, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty widely known that artists are tortured. The majority of artists, writers, singers, songwriters, like all of those, they're, they're a pretty tortured group. And 
a lot of the people who identify with those artists are equally tortured. That's why they identify so strongly with them. So, I mean, if you, I completely 100% idolize somebody for everything that they're saying and everything that they're doing and, and identify like with them on that level, then yeah, it's pretty, I don't want to say reasonable. Reasonable is not the right word, but it's pretty. It's understandable. Understandable that you would take that route. Especially when he was something of an icon for an incredibly marginalized group, oh, which is yeah, absolutely. homosexuals in Japan. Yeah. I mean. Okay, in that time period. And it's, I mean, even today, it's only recently acceptable yeah. to be gay in Japan or in Asia in general. They're, I mean, I talked to Mike about that a little bit in our episode and it's. Not a bright spot. I mean, not even just in those in those places. That that's kind of what I was saying about um, about watching Bohemian Rhapsody earlier. Is Freddie Mercury was a? I mean, even in his time. I mean, now he's like. I mean, almost god status. Um, no, yeah, he's he's definitely a minor deity in my pantheon of deities. Yeah, absolutely, and rightfully so. But in his time, he was highly revered artist right. for being a homosexual and being a complete outcast in the in the in the AIDS outbreak and all of that stuff. But he was completely 100% ashamed to be who he was because in that time period that was not a, an acceptable thing to be. Right. And that's in that's in Europe. That's in England. That's well, England not, isn't exactly the bastion of progressive thought either. No, but that was everywhere. That was America. Oh, yeah. That was I mean in the in during well, that time period that was just not an acceptable thing to at be. The, at the same and this is even before then. Yeah, I mean at the same time Freddie Mercury is dealing with his problems in England. The president of the United States of America was laughing about gay people dying. So, yeah. I mean, it's not a good time. And, and, it's really really tragic. Yeah. And you know, there's there's a very good reason to believe that was part of the copycat suicides. I mean, uh, there is a, a very well-known voice died. And that, I mean, that happens all the time. Um, the one thing good did come from this, and as the tent no guy fell apart without him. Um, they splintered off into multiple different groups. Uh, most of them still worshipped him, second only to the emperor. Uh one of those groups took 12 people hostage at the uh, Japan Federation of Economic Organizations in 1977. It was led by a guy named Yoshio Ito and Tsuchuchi Yushio, uh, who are both members of Mishima's group. Um, they were two people who Mishima did not think were cool enough to ritually murder themselves. <laughs> uh, the hostage situation was uh, only ended thanks to the intervention of Mishima's widow, who told him to stop and go home. <laughs> Uh, so in closing, we have one last giant fuck you to Mishima, thanks to one of his friends, uh, poet Mitsuo Takahashi. Uh, Takahashi was the guy who won the Pulitzer Prize instead of Mishima. And he actually admits ever since he's felt super guilty about it uh, because he feels Mishima is a better writer than him or was a better writer than him. Um, Again, the tortured artist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mishima actually. Uh, so. Takahashi was interviewed very recently about this uh, because Mishima is still very famous, at least his writing is in Japan, but he uh, he started coming back recently as a right wing figure, and, like being lionized for dying for what he believed in, shit like that. Uh, Takahashi said, quote, Mishima actually exemplifies a common tradition and condition of Japanese youth today. Uh, disaffected, desperately looking for a sense of identity and inclination towards fantasy. Mishima anticipated the weak sense of identity in today's youth. 
you could say he laid his life down for them. Meaning the same people that he wanted to fucking destroy is now, he's now championing him for them. That's, he, you have to admit he didn't want that. No, but I, I, I just, I feel like it's so relatable. It, like it everything is. that he stood for. And, and like, honestly, like, like you said before, like I didn't, I had no idea where this was going. I thought that this That's was how I like, like, it. You know, like <laughs> I, I, I was thinking like death cult, like, like, American death cult where you've got hundreds of people dying for this psychotic belief system. But honestly, like everything sounds kind of reasonable for everything that he went through. <laughs> like no Kai reasonable death cult. Yeah. Yeah. I actually reason. Uh, I, I recently joked uh, on Twitter. There was this huge uh, like chain tweet going around. Like what cult would you have fallen for? I'm like Tenokai for sure. All of us is lifting weights and running around the woods in yes. military clothes. Like they're I totally, very, I totally would have fallen for that. Yeah, I totally would have fallen for that. Yeah, little emperor worship. I mean, you love you love reading. Yeah. you love literature. Yeah. you love lifting. Yep. Like this is your jam. Yeah, I'm not so down with the gay sex. Well, I mean that that wasn't a requirement though, was it? I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I know it's very prelevant, and it was something that he preached. Uh, but. Yeah, maybe I could be like, I don't know, they're straight wingman. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, that is our episode. Uh, you know, and it was it was a lot different. I know we've been doing, um, we've been stuck in the Middle East for a while since our series in the from Iran Iraq War and everything else. So it was nice to go to a country we've never been to before on the show. Um, <laughs> also, like I learned, I first learned about the the whole Mishima incident. Uh, forever ago probably a couple decades ago and uh, i've always been really interested and confused by it and i never actually got to look into it until this time like i always just assumed he was some fucking crazed militant like i didn't realize he was uh, like a a virtuoso who kind of lost his mind (laughs) uh but thank you for uh coming on the show thank you for having me it was it was really really interesting something that i enjoyed learning about so Hey, you have a niche I always try to bring you on for. I'm not, I'm not sure how many cults and serial killers I got in military history, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> hey, whenever you have one, yeah. you know who to call. Yeah. Uh, so Rich is smart and doesn't have anything to plug because she stays her stupid ass off fucking social media, unlike myself. <laughs> uh, but if you want to follow the show, you can follow it at lions underscore by. You can follow me at jcast99. Uh, we have a... Tea Public store now. Uh, you can buy some stickers or a coffee cup. I'm going to get some shirts made soon, but the art is slow in coming. Um, thank you for everybody to donate to our Patreon. If you want to keep donating to it, or if you haven't yet, you can go to patreon.com backslash lines led by donkeys, and a, a dollar gets you access to all of our bonus shit to include an episode that uh, we did together about Harry Potter. <laughs> Which is great. And also, Nick should be home soon. Um, I don't know if this episode is coming out before or after Christmas, but we're hoping to have him home before Christmas. So let's all uh, cross our fingers. I don't know. Maybe we'll get a Nick for Christmas. (laughs) I hope it has a good return policy. (laughs) Uh, But thank you, everybody, so much. And uh, we'll see you next time. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible. And as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening.
Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.